0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. JP Moreland. Well, gentlemen, welcome. It is good to have you here with us. We are discussing substance dualism. This is an idea that I personally have taken for granted. And in learning more and reading more, especially of Dr. Moreland's work, I have discovered just how fundamental it is and critical it is to the Christian faith, to so many of the doctrines we hold to so dearly. So I'd like to start us off just by answering the question, what are we? Can you please explain the features of substance dualism? And JP, I'm going to punt it to you because you have written and taught and worked so much with this topic through your career, and I'd love to hear how you would define it.
1: I am a specific soul Hmm. that is embodied right now. So I have a body. That body is very important to my functioning, But it is not essential for my existence. I, I could leave my body. And that means I must be the thing that leaves my body. And that's the soul. So I am a soul, but that doesn't mean the body doesn't matter. It's absolutely important that the body and soul are together. uh, But that's what I am. A body
0: and a soul.
1: No, I'm a soul. I'm not a body and a soul.
0: Oh, okay.
1: That would be like if I'm in my car. You would say uh, uh, you're a driver in a car. Well, no, I'm a driver that's in the car. So I am not a body and soul because if I were Jordan, if my if I died, mm-hmm. I it wouldn't be I that that it continued on. Uh, Because I wouldn't have a body. So I can't be the combination of the two, because uh, there will be a period where I exist without one of the two. Hmm. So I am a soul that's embodied. I have a body, I am a soul.
0: Stan, what would you add to that?
2: Well, this idea underlies so many passages of scripture. So that might be a good way to illustrate what JP is saying. Jesus talks in Matthew 10, 28 uh, about not being afraid of those who kill the body, but can't kill the soul. And he makes this clear distinction between the two. And he also later on, uh, when he is with the thief on the cross, talks about today, you will be with me in paradise. It's clear his body won't be with Jesus in paradise, but he will be. And then Paul speaks of this first, uh, second Corinthians five, eight. We, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So this assumption that I will be with the Lord, even though I'm, I'm absent from my body, following all the way through to Revelation 6, 9, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of all those who'd been killed because of the word of God, their bodies weren't there, but they were there. Hmm. So it's this idea that permeates the teaching of scripture of what we are. And it's been the traditional view throughout church history.
0: So how how do the body and soul relate to each other? JP you gave the example of the car and the driver. Can you can you flesh that out a little bit more?
1: Yes, uh there are different views that hold that we are a soul or and so on and the two kind of major ones would be uh Cartesian dualism, which is Descartes' view, though it doesn't there are modern-day Cartesians that are not quite the same as Descartes, but they're in his ballpark. Richard Swinburne would be an example of that. And then there are uh, what we might call Aristotelian or Thomistic dualists that stand in that tradition. And and by the way, I think both are with, within the bounds of Scripture, although I, I lean toward one. But uh, the the relationship between me and my body is a cause and effect relationship. What that means is that when I will to raise an arm and I'm in a room of people, it is the arm of my body that goes up, not yours. If uh, my body gets hit, you don't feel pain, I do. And so uh, my body can cause things to me and I can cause things to my body. And so on that view, I am like... Uh, a, a captain in a ship, that's the way it uh, has been put in the past. Uh, so that's that view. If if you hold to uh, Thomistic Thomas Aquinas' view, and, and others like him, uh, there are a lot of different varieties. The basic idea is that the soul is what animates the body. You might say that the soul... For Descartes, only contains the powers of consciousness. But for Thomas, the soul contains both the powers of consciousness and the powers of life. So it is the soul that gives the makes the body living. Uh, If the soul leaves the body, it's not a body any longer, it's a corpse. Uh, for a, a Cartesian, if the soul leaves the body, you still have a body there because the body is purely physical. But for Aquinas, the body is not purely physical; it is in-souled matter. One other distinction may be helpful. For a Cartesian, the body and the soul are separate entities; they're separate things. Mm-hmm. Uh, One could survive without the other, and conversely. But for a Thomistic dualist, the soul could survive without the body, but the body could not survive without the soul. And so what you have is that the body is a dependent entity. It depends on something else to exist, and that's something else—is the soul. So there's a more intimate connection between the soul and body for a Thomist than for a Cartesian. Hmm. Stan, you've done a
2: lot of work on
1: this. Would you do you have anything you'd like to add?
2: I think you said it very well. I've often distinguished the two views as Cartesian dualism sees the body and the soul sort of like water is in a glass the fact that the soul is embodied doesn't affect the soul or the body that much. It's just sort of a somewhat superficial temporary relationship. And the Thomistic view is a much deeper unity between the two, not inextricable as we talked about before, but a deep two-way relationship where what would I do with my body affects my soul. Uh, I have an improper diet. I can't think well. And what I do in my soul affects my body. I worry a lot and I develop an ulcer. So there's this, This deep and very fundamental connection. And that underlies, of course, the whole practice of spiritual disciplines, which are bodily activities like fasting that we engage in because those bodily activities have some effect on our soul. They shape our soul in certain ways. And this is such an important issue in biomedical ethics also, because what we understand the human person to be and what the body is, what the soul is, and what their relationship is uh, has such a bearing on so many issues. And I'll share very personally, this became very, very practical for me. A number of years ago, uh, my daughter was in the intensive care unit uh, in a coma, and we weren't sure if she was present or not. Uh, Everybody was asking the question, is her soul still here? It was a very hard 48 hours when we ran a lot of tests and tried to determine that. And ultimately, philosophy became very practical to me. I said, you know, if she is present If we remove the life support, she will continue to function because she's insold in these fundamental ways. And if not, she's been gone for a while and we've been artificially sustaining her life. And uh, we removed the life support and she, uh, she was she clearly was not there because within about a minute she was not functioning. Uh, And so for me was, was it reassuring to know having thought about these things that the decision we made was based on, good reason to believe that that was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So my point is that this is an important issue, not only for theological reasons, as you mentioned earlier, but for ethical and 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 practical and even pastoral issues mm-hmm. that we need to think about in our own lives and may, maybe in the lives of family members or others that at some point or another ask questions about what is life? What is death? How do we understand the two and make some decisions based on that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Stan, I just uh, appreciate that tender vulnerability, and uh, I just can't imagine what that was like. But I just want to thank you for mm-hmm. for showing that that what we're discussing has tremendous practical importance. Um, and if I may, I'd like to add two other things that show how important this issue really is. The first one is that we live in a society where the default view of people is that science has a lot more authority than theology or philosophy. So if a scientist holds something and a a philosopher or a theologian has another view— The scientific view is going to win that discussion every time, according to the way most people think. But what this shows, namely what we're talking about, is that if a really good case can be made, that the soul does exist, it turns out to be the case that the theological and philosophical case for the soul is far, far stronger than any neuroscientific case, that there isn't such a thing. And so this would be an, another example where our culture has been blinded by scientism, and they don't need be, because there are other ways of knowing, and this area is a great example of that. One more point. There has been a loss of belief in life after death, precisely because there's been a growing materialism in the culture. More and more people think that you're your brain uh, or your body, and we're not going into reasons now why or why that's not true. I'm simply making the point that while some Christians who are oddly enough physicalists, and in my opinion, have engaged in a revisionism of the Bible, Nevertheless, they have a very, very hard time making sense out of uh, an intermediate state uh, uh, between death and final resurrection, or making sense out of how it could literally be I who survives death instead of a lookalike or or some other person. Whereas uh, the person who believes in a soul has a very easy time explaining how I could be the one that continues on after death, because I'm my soul and and the soul is what continues. So the life after death issue is a part of the importance of this conversation.
0: Absolutely. And we're not referring here in this intermediary state to a kind of purgatory. Is that correct?
1: Right. What I mean is that, like N.T. Wright put it so nicely, He said the Bible teaches that there's life after life after death. Mm -hmm. Now, what he meant by that was you die, and then there's life after death. In a state where you do not have a body, you are a a disembodied solar person. But there's life after that life after death. And that will be the time in the general resurrection when Christ comes back and so on that we will all be given resurrected bodies. And so we're just talking about the period between death and final resurrection, where we exist as disembodied souls awaiting uh, a new body in the final resurrection.
0: Hmm. Let's talk for a minute about the incarnation and what that has to say about Thomistic dualism in particular how would someone coming from that point of view describe Christ and then describe his uh, resurrected body?
2: Stan,
1: would you like to take that?
2: Sure. Uh, I'm not sure it would parse down to the distinction between Thomistic and Cartesian dualism, but it seems that it, uh, it, it it goes back even to the Nicene Creed, Mm -hmm. Which says that Christ is very God of very God begotten not made of one substance with the Father, uh, you begin this conversation by referring to substance dualism, mm-hmm. the view we're talking about, which is a term that comes from aristotle and and it's not what we think of today as substance, namely something we can touch mm-hmm. and pick up and throw across the room, right It's that type of thing that is independent in its existence in the sense of it has its own being.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
2: not parasitic in nature. Uh, Yeah, you know, we're talking about Christ in the Incarnation, but it also relates to us as substances, and let me distinguish what that means from other views of what we are. So, for instance, in the Eastern view, we are not individual substances. There's only one substance, one reality, one thing that has existence, the one. And we are just emanations of that one or like bubbles on the, the soup of being that's bubbling up and down. And, you know, and we're not really a separate thing. We're just a kind of an emanation of that one. No, the theistic understanding historically in the Nicene Creed captures this, is that God is a substance. Uh, we, we are substances. The, the idea is that we and the divine substance are unique. So all that to say as an underlying background jesus is of the substance of the father the divine being essence takes on human form the human essence Mm -hmm. uh and so it is the uh what's called the hypostatic union the union of those two essences or natures into this one person so i'll leave it there i'll let jp comment on that either correct or develop more nuance no i think that's good I, i i agree but it's, it's where the word substance dualism confuses some people, I think, because what is a substance and is it a weird idea? No, it's an idea that's been around since the earliest uh, thinkers, and it was a deep part of the the creedal affirmations of the church, and I refer to the Nicene Creed in particular, to understand this idea of substance and how important it is to understand the uh, the, the nature of Christ and uh, and our nature.
1: Mm-hmm. If you think about it, we all have a mind, and there are so many powers that our mind has that we suppress and aren't using right now. Like for example, my mind has the ability to do multiplication. Uh it has the ability to, to think about certain US presidents or or to engage in developing a budget and paying my bills. Uh, and and things like that. So my mind is filled with all these, what we'd call dispositions or capacities or powers, but in order for me to be talking to you, I have to not be aware of those, and I have to focus on our conversation. So there's always more inside the mind than we're aware of. uh, uh, That enables us to focus. Now, let's apply this to the Incarnation. We're told by the Chalcedonian Creed that uh, we have to operate within the framework that says that the incarnate Jesus Christ was one person with two natures. Mm -hmm. Now, um, a nature is what you are. And so he had a divine and a human nature, but there was one person. So let's just think about that for a minute in my opinion, one person has one mind and one will and uh, one emotional faculty, let's say. Let's just think about Jesus's mind. He had one mind, but that mind had two different natures that made it what it was. And so that one mind could tap into the divine aspect of of that mind and recognize uh, his omniscience or things of that sort. Or he could tap into his human powers of that one mind and think about what it's going to be like to have dinner later on with his disciples. So that one mind had two ranges of powers Uh, that were put together into one mind. Now, we're told that Jesus did not utilize his divine powers when he was here. What that means, I think, is that he simply chose not to become aware of that. He chose to repress it like we can all do. I mean, if I can do it, if I can say right now, now I'm going to talk to Jordan, I'm not going to think about multiplication, I don't know why Jesus couldn't simply choose to let himself be aware of and utilize the human powers of that one mind and simply not go there with the divine ones. He could if he wanted to, but he voluntarily decided that he wanted not to. So I don't know if that helps, but Mm -hmm. that's one way to think of it that has helped me.
0: We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. How would you describe the word mind as it relates to soul? What, what do we mean when we're saying those two, those two words? So when you were when you were talking about the the mind of Christ, would that be the same thing as the soul?
1: Yeah um, a university is is let's say one institution, but it has different faculties
0: mm-hmm.
1: It has a chemistry faculty, an English faculty, and they're all uh, belo- they all belong to the same university now what what makes the chemistry faculty what it is makes it different than English faculty. Well, every member of the chemistry faculty has abilities that resemble the other members of that. Maybe a little different. Maybe there's a physical chemist and an organic, but they, their abilities are more closely grouped than any of them with the English faculty because they don't know what they know. Now, the soul has faculties. And these are, I'm going to use the word compartment. Philosophically, I think you'd call them modes or maybe dependent parts, Mm -hmm. which means that they could not exist outside the soul. In other words, the soul is in a collection of little parts that build it up like a chair is a collection of legs and and a place to sit and so on. No, the soul is prior to its faculties, but the faculties are what we might call little developed compartments within it. Now, in the mind, there is a range of powers that are abilities, just like in the chemistry faculty. Mm -hmm. And those are abilities to have beliefs, to have thoughts, and to engage in reasoning. There's another faculty maybe it's the biology faculty that has a different set of abilities that resemble in this case, maybe the emotional faculty would contain a run a a range of powers like the ability to be angry or to be happy or sad or what have you. The will Mm -hmm. would be a faculty that would contain a whole range of abilities to act. For example, The ability to direct my mind on a new subject or to raise my arm or uh, to do a whole variety of things. Mm -hmm. And so you have these different compartments. And so the soul is a substantial thing that has these dependent little compartments in them called faculties. Mm -hmm. And each faculty contains within it resembling powers mm-hmm. and so the mind is a faculty of the soul in my view the spirit is a faculty of the soul and the will is a faculty of the soul so there are all these kind of different dependent components of the soul but don't think of the soul as as a collection of faculties mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, a chair is a collection of atoms that would not be the way to think about it yeah.
2: So to summarize, the mind is referred to often as a range of capacities within the soul. I think the thing that is confusing is that mind as a term is also sometimes used philosophically to refer to the soul or the immaterial dimension. So philosophy of mind Mm -hmm. uh, typically talks about all of these different Types of capacities. So that's where confusion comes in, whether you're using mind in a philosophical way to simply return to the immaterial dimension, uh, or if you're using it more specifically as we are here to refer to that range of capacities within the soul that have to do with cognition. Mm.
0: That's right. It's an excellent distinction. That was really helpful.
2: Thanks. And let me tie into another thing JP said. He He used the word a, a substantial soul. And that wasn't just a throwaway word, the word substantial ties back into this entire topic, Jordan. Mm. Uh, because it's a cognitive substance. So again, the point is that the soul is a substance. It's not had by something more basic. It has its own subsistence. And that's how we come to understand the idea that we are not identical to God or just an emanation from God. We're distinct from God, but we still reflect his image. But it's a reflection, not an identity, because we're a substance. So all these things interrelate in very important ways. Yeah,
0: we're a reflection, not an identity, because... Of the
2: substance. Well,
1: and, and Jordan, this I think it's important for us to labor this a bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anne made a point earlier that I just want to make sure because it's so important that we don't that we don't miss. He said it's not just something you can throw across the room or pick up. And so I wanna I want to draw a very careful distinction between a substance and stuff. Mm. There's an easy way to do that. Take the statement, Mary had a little lamb. Now, if the word lamb is referring to a substance, it's talking about a particular individual thing that has properties and attributes and can stay the same when it gains new properties and loses old ones. And so... Uh, if we're using lamb as a substance, a proper question would be, "Well, where is the little guy?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and you could count them. I mean, say, "Well, there are ten lambs on on the hillside because there are ten individual, particular things that have properties, but they're basic. They're they're not had by something else, and they can remain the same through change." Now, let's suppose we use "Mary had a little lamb." Uh, where lamb was referring to a stuff, or some would call it a mass. Now, there you might say, well, how much did she eat? And the answer may be nine ounces. And so, stuff is not a particular thing, but it is a quantity of ultimate massy stuff, so that maybe... It could be that some physical substances, like let's just say an electron is in a substance. When we take it as a particle, it might be filled with stuff. It might have massy stuff in it. Uh, a soul doesn't. A souls are substances that don't have any stuff. We we have baggage, but that's a whole different problem. <laughs> you, know, you got your stuff and I got mine. <laughs> But, but it's not that it's not a math. Mm-hmm. So we don't want people to be so wedded to the material world when they hear the word substance, they're thinking of stuff, material stuff. And that's not what we're taught. God is a substance. Angels are substances, in that they're individual things that have
2: attributes, and
1: they can remain the same through change if that happens. So mm-hmm.
2: Well, thanks for bringing that to the fore. Such an important idea. And I think there's just such a a, a desire on the part of so many to somehow reduce the immaterial reality to the physical. Uh, It's hard to get away from some type of a dualistic notion that there's a soul and a body. Mm -hmm. But so many won't go where we're going to say the soul is actually uh, its own substance. It has its own reality And we'll instead say, well, the soul is just uh, an emanation uh, that develops when the brain gets to a certain level of complexity. And then from that, thoughts begin to emerge. And so there's this duality, but it's a duality of properties. You know, the brain has these physical properties uh, that relates to the molecular structure and et cetera, et cetera. But then because of its complexity, it develops these non-physical properties, but still even though there's a duality, there's not uh, there, there's not a separate substance that's a soul. It's really just one thing, a body that has physical and immaterial properties, and and that's what we're arguing against. And uh, and actually, the the view that's gaining traction, you know, substance dualism, is making somewhat of a resurgence. I know JP, you were just uh, involved in editing the Blackwell Companion to Substance Dualism, yes, which uh, very respectable academic press mm. brought this out. And it's one of a number of things that have come out recently that uh, really, because of the, the explanatory power substance dualism has, has really uh, brought it back into the conversation, which is pretty exciting. It is very exciting. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, still, uh, it's still hard for some people to get their head around and their mind around. This idea that the soul is a substance and it is not material. Mm. Now, as Christians, they well, I'll take that for for granted in a sense because scripture is clear. But then when you start to read whether it's scientific literature about neuroscience or some of the philosophical literature that's reductionistic, you know, there's this disconnect of, well, okay, I've got to give up those beliefs that I see in scripture because that's what science and philosophy has discovered. And, And our point is no, actually not. Actually, Uh, the most rigorous uh, thinking seems to be uh, supporting some form of substance dualism. And as I, I've tipped my hand earlier, I think uh, a Thomistic form, Uh, but uh, regardless of which form, at least some notion where the soul is itself a substance.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that the two places where people encounter this idea are often around when the body becomes in and when the soul leaves the body. So we, we've talked a little bit about when the soul leaves the body and what happens at that point. Can we talk a bit about how a body would become ensouled? There are different views on this. Would you guys give us a little sampler of what kind of the views are?
2: Go ahead, Stan. Well, I would, I guess, start by thinking about the nature of the DNA molecule. And when you think about a DNA molecule, building block of the of body, uh, it becomes apparent upon reflection that it isn't actually a physical thing. Uh, we know that because we can take parts out and put parts in and it st- stays the same. So it can't be identical with the physical constituents, but rather it's a structure or a set of relations. And that raises the question, what is it that causes that structure what is it that that structures those things in that way what kind of cause can explain that effect and it seems that the best explanation is an immaterial soul that causes that structure to accomplish certain ends now I'm tying into what JP said earlier about certain capacities and uh, proclivities and we talked about this last time mm-hmm. about how the soul has has these ranges of capacities that it isn't Fully realizing or expressing, but it moves toward expressing those more and more. And part of the process of the soul structuring a body through DNA is allowing it to fulfill its capacities or abilities to interact with the physical world, to move around in the physical world, to pick things up, to in other ways engage the physical world. So it's really interesting that even as you stop and think about the very earliest moments of life at conception, the soul is present. It seems to me structuring the body, quote, unquote, around itself to realize its ends vis-a-vis the physical world. JP can say a lot more about this. I really came to understand this as I was reading a book, JP, in in the philosophy of mind class, I think I had with you by Richard Connell, Substance and Modern Science.
1: Excellent book.
2: But that in a sense seems to be uh, the relationship and how the two begin.
1: Gordon, there's another side to this that often people bring up, and that is, how could a soul that's so different than matter in the body, how could they interact? I think the answer has to start by saying that the question is actually ambiguous. And there are two different questions that could be asked here, and we need to distinguish them. The first way to do it is what I call the mechanism question. The question, how could body and soul interact, is like the question, how does turning on my ignition cause the pistons to move? Now, that kind of question is asking for a mechanism between the turning on of the key and the pistons through which the turning on the key makes the pistons move. And so if the question is the mechanistic question, it says, how could A interact with B? And you're looking for an intervening mechanism between A and B, through which A interacts with B, and you can try to describe that mechanism. Now, if that's the question, it is a mistake because there is no intervening mechanism. Now, just think of it like this. Suppose that A can interact with B only through C. Mm -hmm. But then you can ask, well, how does A interact with C? And if you said, well, there is an intervening mechanism D and A interacts with C through D, you see that you can't keep going. At some point, the interaction has to be what philosophers call basic. Mm -hmm. And an interaction is basic if there's not some other thing by means of which they interact. They just do. It's immediate and basic. So in my view, the way that the soul's interaction with the body and vice versa is primitive. It's basic. Uh, There is no intervening mechanism. And so the how question is actually a category foul. It's a mistake. Mm. It's asking a question that just doesn't apply. It's a confused question. Now, the the, the how question might, though, mean something else. Instead of being the mechanistic question, it might be the skeptical question. And here the, the question seems to be, given that body and soul are so different, just how could it be? It's. I'm skeptical that things so different could interact with each other. And so it's not requesting a mechanism. It's expressing sort of just an incredulity at the very idea. Now, I think that this is really what I consider to be kind of phony, because I think for millennia, everyone, including atheists, have been willing to agree that if there is a God he could part the red sea. I don't see any problem with that. But there you have the same problem with me raising my arm. Mm-hmm. Because God is a spirit and he's doing something to matter. Now it doesn't matter how big he is. This isn't a question of power, it's a question of the different natures of spirit and matter. So it would apply equally to God as well as to me. So what that illustrates is I don't think people find this unintelligible at all, because they're willing to grant that if God is real, he could surely do that. So so I think there's no problem. The other thing to say is that this objection, the skeptical objection, sometimes rests on the claim that if A is going to cause something to be A and B have got to be like one another. Mm-hmm. And that is just not true. Uh, We have examples in the history of science where particles cause things to waves or forces cause things to particles and they're not alike. And so uh, we have more reason to believe that we do raise our arms freely sometimes (laughs) than to believe that principle that you can't do that unless things are alike. And so the skeptic here has got to prove why we should buy the principle. We don't have to prove that we raise our arms because I think we're immediately aware that occasionally, at least, we do that on our own.
0: So is it a bit like looking for Pinocchio's strings?
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, I I don't think
2: there are strings.
0: Mm, that's helpful.
2: Let me add just a little bit to that. A number of these things you alluded to, actually, J.P., you know there are just a lot of things that we don't understand fully yet we know that something's going on there. We often and this happens in science often we don't know how but we know that. You know we we know that A and B are related in some way but we haven't figured out how they are. But the fact that we don't know how doesn't mean that we don't know that it actually occurs. So the fact that we don't know how the soul causes the body to move we still know that it does
1: that's a very important point stan i mean really is
2: yeah and the other thing that seems to me uh, you were alluding to and i think it's worth getting on the table is that uh you know when somebody's asking for the mechanism the thing that connects a and b soul and body mind and brain uh they're they're asking for an efficient cause. They're again, asking a category fallacy. They're asking what's that physical thing that connects the non-physical thing to the physical thing. (laughs) Mm. And by understanding the four causes that Aristotle talks about, and not just reducing all causation to only two of them, namely material and efficient causes, we can see where the category fallacy arises. So uh, let me give just a very quick summary of the four causes, which really formed the basis of science up until the Enlightenment. Uh, It was the idea, and it comes from Aristotle again, that that to really explain something in the physical world, you've got to explain it in four different and equally important areas or four equally important causal factors. Uh, And the best way to illustrate it is by a house. So I see a house that's going up in my neighborhood, and I ask, what ca- what's causing that house? And there are four equally true answers, but they're all very different. Uh, one answer might be the bricks and mortar. Uh, and in a very real sense, those materials cause that house to be built. So it's the material cause. In another very real sense, it's the workers showing up on the job and assembling the matter in certain ways and the energy that is needed to actually bring about this house from those materials. So that would be an analogy to the efficient cause or the the energy in the system that gets it done. But then there's also the architectural drawings, the form that the house is to take. So the blueprint is a cause and in some ways even a more fundamental cause because it directs those workers who then take the matter and structure it in predefined ways. And the soul, as the formal cause, shapes the body, as we discussed earlier, to be structured in a certain way. But finally, with a house, uh, an equally true answer is uh, that house is caused because somebody wanted a home. Somebody wanted to live in this neighborhood. And they, in a real sense, caused the house. Uh, and that's called the final cause, the reason for which, the 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 thing that sort of pulled it into being, so to speak, and uh, and this is what we keep talking about when we talk about the soul having capacities that are to be fully expressed. There's a certain end, or technically a teleology, uh, a movement toward full, fully expressing our humanness in every dimension, intellectually and emotionally and volitionally and so on. And so all four of those things are essential to this conversation and when somebody says what what's the efficient cause or the physical connection between the soul and the the the, the body it's just confusing or really reducing the causes to say hey it's got to be a material efficient so so what is it yeah. and the important thing to say is well no wait a minute it doesn't in fact it's it's a category fallacy to 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 assume and try to assign those causes to this but we really ought to be talking about what's the formal and final cause that then relates to the formation of the body the interaction of the of the, the soul with the body and so on and so forth jp add anything that needs to be said
1: no i mean why does my arm go up what caused my arm to go up well i wanted to vote uh and uh what kind of an act what was the form of that act what kind of an act was it it was a voting kind of an act. It wasn't a baseball hitting kind of an act. So that's just an illustration of what you're saying.
0: Hmm. Well, gentlemen, is there anything else you'd like to say before we go?
1: Well, I would uh, like to make one more point that I think is important. We're able to be aware of things, directly aware, that go beyond our five senses. Now, I can be directly aware of the lamp by just looking and seeing it. But I can be directly aware of my own consciousness, and I can even be directly aware of my own self or ego or soul or I by simply introspection so that I know which soul I am in a room I don't have any question about whether I'm the the soul or another one, because I'm directly aware of my soul. The important point is that this empirical idea that the only thing you can really be aware of is what you can see, touch, taste, smell, or hear, makes no sense of what we actually know. And I'm saying that two of those things that we actually know are what state of consciousness I'm in right now. And those aren't physical, but I can be directly aware. And the other one is what, am I and which which unified substance am I? And I'm directly aware of myself or my ego. So people who say we don't have a self, I just, I know better because I'm aware of myself. And that's an important thing epistemologically to draw out of our discussion
2: about the soul. Thanks, JP. That's really good, really helpful. One thing I would add is there are so many other implications to this conversation, whether it has to do with some other issues in ethics we haven't talked about, uh, whether uh, it has to do with uh, our origins, how we came to be, whether uh, it has to do with the making sense of the final resurrection and having a body again for eternity, as well as some objections that are raised against substance dualism, that I think we should take another episode and talk more about some of those things. Absolutely. I agree.
0: I agree. Great idea. Let's do it all right well thank you gentlemen for joining me on the thinking christianly podcast i'm looking forward to the continuation of this conversation next time me too that brings us to the end of this edition of the thinking christianly podcast i hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plink, encouraging you to think Christianly.